This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, my name is William Sutcliffe. Welcome to this event, generously, generously sponsored by the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. It's a great honour to be here to present to you the multiple award-winning writer, Roger Shahade, whose body of work adds up to an extended project of bearing witness to the last half-century of political upheaval in the West Bank, always with extraordinary emotional and intellectual honesty. I think he's Palestine's most important living writer and is one of the most important political writers at work today. Today we're going to be discussing his new book, Where the Line is Drawn, which recounts the story of a troubled, lifelong friendship the author has had with an Israeli, Henry Abramovich. So please join me in welcoming to Edinburgh, Raja Shahade. Um, so we're going to be discussing our new book, Where the Line is Drawn, and um, it, we would like to begin with a short reading that Roger's going to give from the book. Thank you, Will. I'd like to stand up to read, and thank you all for coming. I'll read from the first chapter, which is called The Stamp Collector, and it's Ramallah, 1979. He looked too large for the cramped house. He always left his slippers under the bed, brought up his short, stocky legs, and folded them underneath him. It was only there on the bed, with its gleaming white sheet stretched over a large mattress, that he seemed to have enough room for his corpulent body. This was the first house my parents and sister came to live in after they were forced out of Jaffa. How crowded it must have been. I'm eight years old and sprawled on the bed with my uncle. I occupy only a small space at one corner of the bed. His stamp collection is spread over the mattress, stamps of all sizes, large and small, squares and rectangles, with differently colored, serrated edges. Among them, I see one with strange, angular lettering. It looks ancient, pharaonic. I read the small Arabic script, Israel. When I pointed to my uncle, he puts his stubby fingers to his mouth and whispers, Hush. I turn, he turns his head to look around him as if to see whether anyone had, has overheard us. Silently, I scrutinize this stamp more carefully. I'm curious about the image on it. It is of an extended hand, arm, with strange, with strong fingers gripping an orange and white flower. What sort of body produces such a grip? I imagine broad shoulders and thick, rippling muscles. Could that unreachable land be peopled by giants? There is writing on the side in Roman script, which I cannot read. I ask my uncle to translate, and he tells me it is French for the conquest of the desert. I ask what conquest means, and he explains. I had, of course, heard of Israel, but I knew nothing about it other than what I had heard from my cousin Amal, who lived there in Acre, pointing to the hills next to our house, the only home I knew. She had once said, you see these hills there that are brown? In Israel, they would be green. She and my Aunt Mary, who spoke fast and was constantly puffing on a cigarette, were permitted to visit us, but just for a few days at a time. I never saw my male cousins because only women were allowed to cross the green line, the border 
until 1967 between Israel and Jordan. They seemed so wretched, their hair uncombed, their demeanor tense, demanding. The visits were fleeting. They would come through the Mendelbaum Gate in Jerusalem to celebrate Christmas with us, not every year, only when they succeeded in getting a permit from the Israeli authorities. They never knew until the last minute whether or not they would be allowed to cross. And when they did, their visit would be so rushed, they would hardly catch their breath. They were only allowed to stay for 48 hours. Then they would gather their things and whatever they had managed to buy, Turkish coffee cups were especially desirable, and they would leave us as quickly as they had come. The house would then return to calm, and there would be lengthy discussions about them and their visit. Life in Israel seemed so difficult. We couldn't possibly envy them for living among hills that were greener than ours. My uncle worked in Kuwait. I did not appreciate then what it meant to work in the desert without air conditioning. He said that he had to sit in a barrel of cold water because it was so hot to amuse himself in the desert, he collected stamps. He would rub his red eyes and then slowly pull the beautifully preserved stamps from between the transparent pages of his album. When he reached his most prized stamp, his eyes would open wide. <clears throat> he would hum and exhale slowly through pursed lips, taking his time as he slowly raised the stamp and held it up in front of his eyes. Now this one, this one is very precious, he would say, and holding it carefully between the tips of his chubby fingers, he would turn it around and gaze at it with admiration. But this one, he would say, picking up the stamp from Israel, we must hide. Now, half a century later, having made countless crossings into the land, the once forbidden land, I realize how unaware I had been at the time what Israel would come to mean to me over the years. For 19 years after the catastrophe in 1948 or the Nakba, when around 750,000 Palestinians were forced out of their homes and Arab villages were razed to the ground with the British mandate and the establishment of Israel, we lived in the part of historic Palestine under Jordan. How could we have known then that in a few years Israel would occupy our land, that over the years we would cross its borders so frequently and that our entire life would come to be dominated by the country with the unmentionable name. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. As that reading has beautifully illustrated, um, your work is very political, but also very personal, very autobiographical. There's never any soapboxing or grandstanding, but somehow your your book in a very books in a very personal way. They all um, add up to a quite devastating account of the oppression of the Palestinian people. I wonder how did you go about finding this very distinctive literary voice? Well, I think my books in, in their entirety have always been a search. And the search started almost immediately after the occupation. After the occupation, it was a very confusing time. Uh, we, 
were not prepared for what came and and uh, not prepared because we, we didn't know about Israel. We were surprised by what we saw of Israel and uh, we were not uh, prepared to understand how to go about our life under the new conditions. So for me it was a very confusing time and the way that I dealt with the confusion was to keep a journal. From the very beginning of the occupation, I started writing a journal. And in the journal, I would explore, try to understand what was happening around me. And I always appreciated what I had read, actually of, from James Joyce, that you, turn the, you use the raw material of life into art. And I always appreciated the art that came from the lived experience rather than uh, high standing. And, and I aspired always to explain things through the lived experience and, and use my own experiences to uh, elucidate what was happening around me. And at what point did you realize that this um, journal was going to be a public rather than a, than a private thing? Well, it, it has always been a private thing and continues to be a private thing because I continue to write a, a journal and keep a journal and it, it's, it's really like a way of life, keeping a journal. Uh, but what happens is that uh, every time I, I start writing a book and I use the journal to remind me of the time. For example, in this book, which spans over 40 years of occupation, uh, and, and this relationship with Israelis, I, I go back, I went back to the journal to be reminded of what had taken place and how I was feeling at that, at that time and use parts of the journal for the writing. But, but the, the, the process of turning the journal into, into a, a literary work is, is a long process. And in a way, what happens, the way it happens is that I pour my uncensored emotions and feelings into the journal and, and this would be a way of releasing myself from these emotions and then use that in a more deliberate manner in the writing. Mm. Okay, well, that brings us perfectly back to this book that we're going to be discussing today, which is um, Where the Line is Drawn, which accounts a lifelong friendship you've had with um, Henry Abramovich. And you first met in 1977. And the... The nuances of how this relationship changes over the course of the decades is, is at the heart of this book. Um, so what I'd like to, to do now is go through several points at which this relationship has changed. So let's start with the beginning. 1977, you met on the occasion of uh, uh, Anwar Sadat giving a speech to the Knesset, which you felt gave you some hope for the future, hopes for peace. Um, and you met this Israeli, Henry Abramovich. Um, what happened when you met him? Why were you drawn to him? Well, first of all, when I met him, he wasn't an Israeli. He was a Canadian Jew who had come to visit Israel to see what it was like, and he had no idea that he would be staying in Israel at that point. And it was a very opportune time to meet, actually, because it was a time of hope. Uh, I had gone to Tel Aviv with my father, who was invited by the New Outlook magazine, which was a leftist magazine, to hear the uh, uh, speech that Sadat was giving to the Israeli Knesset. And in the speech, Sadat said all the right things. 
that the solution for the Middle East problem and, and the Arab-Israeli conflict is, uh, must go through the resolution of the Palestinian problem and the right of recognition of the right of return and the end of occupation. All the right things were said by Sadat. And, and I, at that point, was very hopeful and thinking that eventually... Of course, we would be ending the occupation and there would be a Palestinian state. I had no doubt that there would be a Palestinian state at that point in my life. And then uh, my father was, of course, very busy because all the journalists wanted to hear what, what he uh, thought of the speech. And I was sitting alone. And then this young man with a beard, long beard, comes and sits next to me. And uh, we start at first speaking about the speech, but it doesn't take very long because both of us are not interested in, were not interested in politics at that point. And then we start talking about all other kinds of things and re we realize that we have le lots in common. He loves walking, he, he's, he, he's a psychologist, he loves to talk about himself and dreams and, and the importance of dreams in one's lives and all the psychological aspects which I was terribly interested in at that time. And so we decide that uh, why I invite him to come to, to walk in Ramallah, in the field, in the hills in Ramallah. And he says, I'd love that. And he comes and, and uh, the friendship begins between us. So I was very struck by that since you're, you're known as a, as a political writer and your life has obviously been very dominated by the political situation in the West Bank. But you say of this meeting, you say you're drawn to him because Henry, like me, was not political. Not political. Um, I, I was not political. I, I, I had to... You know, it, it was in time that I saw what was happening, couldn't stand aside and let it happen without a comment and without exposing it. And then, of course, I'm now going fo forward, but then in 1979, I, I and others started Al-Haq, the human rights organization. Mm. And through Al-Haq, I came to know about things that were happening all over the West Bank and the Gaza Strip that I wouldn't have known about normally. And so there was lots to write about, to, to, to analyze in, from a legal point of view and, and to expose. Because at that point, Israel was promoting the view that the occupation was the most benevolent occupation in history. And of course, I knew otherwise and couldn't s remain silent. I bore witness. And this, is this something that you kind of surprises you when you look back at your journal? Because obviously you're... Your views have changed. This is 1977, so you've already been under occupation for 10 years, and yet you describe yourself as, as apolitical. When you look back on yourself at that age, do you think you were slightly in denial about what was happening or reacting against your father? Or well, all these things, but also the main interest that I had at that point was in uh, psychological things. I was trying to analyze what was happening to me psychologically. I, my relationship to my father was very dominant in my life, and... And I didn't, I didn't also understand how I could... I, I didn't like the people who were involved in politics, who, who, who spoke condemnations about Israel, and, and I thought it was useless. So in, in one of the things that we did when we started the Haq, we said, we are not going to do any condemnation, because con who are we to condemn? We are going to do something more useful than condemnation. And, and most of the politicians were uh, condemning and, and uh, speaking loudly and, and I, I found this empty talk. Mm. I, I didn't want to be part of that uh, circle. But perhaps you, you should explain to the audience what Al-Haq is and how you continue to be involved in it. Uh, Al-Haq was uh, the first human rights organization in the occupied territories. 
and actually in, in, in the Arab world, really. Uh, and it, was, it, it became an affiliate of the International Commission of Jurists very soon after we started. And, and we started it in 79 and had lots to do because we had to write, about, uh, write reports about what was the human rights violations and, and analysis of the illegal changes that were taking place in the occupied territories through mil military orders. And, and so there was overwhelming amounts of things to do, which Al-Haq went at it with, with great vigor. And, and the more I knew, the more angry I became and the more involved I became. Mm. And, and we're going to go on to chart how your relationship with Israel and your relationship with Henry changes. But just to make it clear how, how great the change is over the years, I think it's worth pointing out that you say at this point that it was a closer friendship than any you had with the Palestinian. Uh, and the other thing you said which struck me at this point is you say at this, at this point in time, you say you had a certain amount of admiration for Israel's openness and progressiveness. Yes. Uh, I... At that point, there were many people who admired many things about Israel because it, it had things that we didn't find in Arab governments. So there was the rule of law, there was uh, 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 the possibility that a politician could be tried in, in the courts of the country, uh, there was uh, uh, freedom of press by and large. Of course, at that point, I did not know and did not have any contact really with the experience of the Palestinians who stayed in Israel, who were being discriminated against, yeah. who, to whom, for whom democracy was not uh, uh, an experience, who, whose uh, uh, freedom of expression was suppressed. And I, I, I was not aware of this. I, I saw Israel through the Jerusalem Post, which was a, a liberal uh, newspaper at that time, and, and which wrote openly uh, in criticism of the government. I saw that there was a good legal system. Uh, I saw that there were many aspects of democracy and socialism. I Israel at that point was very socialist, and free education, free health care. Uh, uh, they, they were all also, uh, uh, they didn't like to put on suits and uh, uh, neckties in, in the Knesset or in the, uh, the courts. And, and I found these very refreshing. And I also was very impressed by the fact that you could change your name and you could acquire a new <laughs> identity. And to me, that was meant like you can recreate yourself, uh, which, of course, had ideological positions that I wasn't quite aware of uh, mm. at that time. But from what I saw in 1977, I had admiration for many aspects of Israeli life. And, uh, and since this is an honest book and I wanted to write honestly how I felt, I, I wrote about the admiration I had for Israel. Okay, that's fascinating. Which, which might, which might uh, irritate some people, but mm. never mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure this is the usefulness of a journal as a resource. You find things you've thought yourself that you may not have remembered thinking or wanted to thought. But you're wanted to think. But you're, so your book, there, there are chapter breaks in your book and they jump... To different, they jump forwards in time, um, and so I'd like to take on the next jump in time, just to 1980. So it's just three years later, uh, but by this point, Menachem Begin of the Likud Party is now Prime Minister of Israel. Um, settlement building has increased hugely, and this creates um, the first kind of turning point in your relationship. And, and in this chapter, you say, of this point in time, you say, unlike Henry, I did not have the luxury of ignoring politics. Um, so was this the first time that politics began to intrude in your friendship and create a gulf? Uh, possibly, yes. Uh, yes, I think uh, before, that, uh, before that, the intensity of the violations were not such as to 
make me so angry as to be critical of Henry. Uh, and I must also say that at this point, there was another friendship with uh, a woman called Nomi, Nomi Ilan. And, and she was Israeli-born, uh, and uh, she knew, uh, her father was a diplomat and, and, and knew some of these characters like Begin uh, intimately. And, 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 and she warned me that my optimism was misplaced because people like Sharon can do a lot of evil and, and uh, are very dangerous. And soon enough, it, it, she was proven right. Because in 1980, uh, first of all, several things happened in 1980. First, uh, 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 Begin reneged on his promise to Carter to stop settlement building. And uh, uh, Sadat was uh, proceeding with his peace uh, process with Israel and made a peace uh, agreement with uh, forgetting the Palestinians and, and, and forgetting all the promises that he had made in his speech in the Knesset. Uh, and then in 1980 uh, or 81, no, I think 80, 81, uh, there was the attack in Ramallah uh, and in Nablus and in, in Birin, which is near Ramallah, on the mayors. Uh, uh, the un Jewish underground put bombs uh, to explode these three mayors, and, and Bassem Shaka of Nablus, the mayor of Nablus, lost his legs. Mm. And so uh, the people who were involved one of the people who was involved, who, who was later found out, uh, was, uh, had been serving in the military government in, in Ramallah. And I knew him. And, and I couldn't imagine that somebody who had a baby face, he didn't look like a, a criminal, would do such a criminal act. And then, of course, uh, Israel attacked South Lebanon in 1980. And, and it was a, a, a very harsh and cruel war. And it was followed by Sabra and Shatila the massacre mm -hmm. in Sabra and Shatila, where, where the Israelis had made a cover-up for, for the uh, phalange uh, to uh, commit the murder in the refugee mm -hmm. camps of Sabra and Shatila. And at that point, I thought, where is Henry? Why isn't he speaking out against these things? He was outside. And, and he wrote me a, a, a postcard saying, I can only bow my head in, 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 in prayer. For, for what has happened. He was ashamed of what has happened. And I thought, well, he has reacted. But mm. then later on, when, when things, more things happened, I, I was dissatisfied with his reaction. He would say, I, have, I will never join the army. And, and uh, to him, this meant a lot. But I thought, well, never join the army. But you know, all these settlements which are being built are being built for people like Henry to come Jews from Canada and the U.S. and the West to come to, to Israel to settle and to settle in by taking our land. So he, he, he is implicated, in a sense, by, by accepting Israel. It was different than Naomi, who was Israeli-born and who uh, reacted uh, from an insider's point of view. He wasn't Israeli-born. He had decided, and at that point, he had decided to stay he had decided to come and join in a country which was doing all these terrible things to me, and he was silent. So I thought there's something wrong there. And did you manage to explain to him? I mean, did you feel like he was... Oh, there's yes. There's an issue of complacency here. Did he oh, yes. try and understand? Oh, yes, I did. You know, what? Uh, our relationship was also... A lot of it was in letters. I wrote letters to him, he wrote letters uh, back. And, and fortunately, I had left these letters, so I used them in the book. 
And in, in after the Sabra and Shatila and, and, and these uh, things, when I was very angry. I wrote him a very angry letter. And, and he wrote back, trying to appease me. And he wrote very beautiful things, and he wrote poetry and so on. But it was all words, all words, all words. And, and at some point, I would be standing in line uh, asking for a, a, the most basic thing, a permit to, to, to move, a permit to get a telephone, a permit for every aspect of life in the West Bank, you needed a permit. And I would stand for hours in these queues uh, to, to get to the point when I would beg for a permit. And I would think, well, where is Henry? You know, his, mm. his, his life is so much uh, luxurious, and, and he, he has the luxury of saying, I, I'm not going to be involved in politics. But I can't have that luxury because my life is so involved, whether I like it or not. And he could not understand what you were going through. Well, uh, maybe he did more than I thought, but I, I didn't think that his reaction was sufficient. It's interesting, one thing that really struck me, this crops up later in the book, is you discover much later in the book when he has over ch older children that he's never even told his children about the night Th That shocked me. That was quite Th shocking. That shocked me. That shocked me. Because I thought, because in the beginning of our relationship, uh, we went together to Jaffa because we had this woman who's a family friend whose husband had been, uh, was... Uh, uh, died, he, he built a hospital in Jaffa and, and he died uh, unexpectedly because of an infection. There was no antibiotic then. And, and she buried him in the garden of, of that uh, uh, hospital near the house. And, and she always wanted to make a tombstone which was the best in the world for him because she loved him so much. And she didn't manage to do it by 48 when they had to leave, forced to leave Jaffa. And so she wanted me to go and check on the state of the tomb uh, on the grave, rather. And uh, I took Henry and we went following her direction to, to look for the grave. And, uh, and we were looking for the grave and somebody comes, security person, says, what are you doing? We said, we're looking for the grave. And we explained the woman and the, the fact that they were living there and so on. He said, he denied everything. He said, there was no one here, no Palestinian, go away. And, and that was the first denial of the existence of Palestinians that I had personally experienced, mm. and it shocked me. And, and then when I realized that Henry, who knew from me, at least, about the Nakbe and about the f f pain of all of us for being forced out of our homes, which were still there, and we could see them and we could visit mm. them, uh, that he would not tell his children about my pain, I thought that was terrible. And uh, I, I couldn't understand it. And it implies a lack of willingness to try to understand. It seems that you often get on the Israeli left is a, a willingness to engage with the occupation in 1967. But that's as far as it goes. Even a lot of the very people who consider themselves very left-wing are very reluctant to engage with the events of 48. Maybe so. Maybe he, when I confronted him, he said, you know, they had a very Zionist education. And it seemed as though he did not want to disrupt their composure or something, mm. uh, which, which I thought was very strange because, of course, I have other friends, Israeli friends, who, who are political and whose children are very political and, and they have done amazing things together. And, and so it's not necessarily the case mm. that... Uh, so I don't understand it. And, and I, I, didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't, mm. it. it didn't settle in well with me at all. It, in fact, it shocked me when I realized it. 
But what's interesting in terms of this book is that it comes, crops up at several times in the book, in the account of the friendship, is that you communicate through letter and there are times, particularly of political stress, where you feel a lot of resentment towards him and where it's hard to physically get together because of yeah. restrictions on your movement. But then when you do get together, you often say that your feelings of resentment evaporate and the old warmth comes back. Yeah, he, he's a very charming uh, man and, and, and we, we do have a lot in common. And I was always torn because on the one hand, I don't like political relationships and I have many friends with whom I talk politics and we end up talking politics more than talking about anything else. And with Henry, it was a different thing. We talked about books, we talked about psychology, we talked about all kinds of things that were interesting. And I thought, uh, do I really want him to just talk about politics and, and then uh, reduce our friendship into a political friendship? I don't, didn't really want it. But at the same time, to get to him very often, especially during the first intifada, and worse, even during the second intifada, it was an ordeal. To, to get to Jerusalem to, to see him. And, and then when I got there, Henry would not even ask me how, how it was on the way he, to here. He, he would just completely avoid the subject. And I thought, you know, there's something wrong about it, uh, uncomfortable about it. At mm. least he could ask, he could mm. say, uh, you know, how was it? Mm. He didn't. And, and so at the end of the meeting, although it would be very charming when we were there, uh, and, and very engaging and so on. Uh, at the end of the meeting, I, I felt a bit of an emptiness, a bit, a bit of a, uh, anger. anger. Mm. That's very interesting. I think this brings us very nicely to a passage we were talking about just before we came out here about... I mean, you're talking here about the... You're drawn to having an apolitical friendship, but yet you, on some level, also represent his unwillingness to engage with politics and the effect it's having on your life. Would you mind reading the little bit we talked about? There's a couple of paragraphs from page 95 where you describe your internal dilemma that's often run through your life in terms of do you engage or do you detach yourself from the political reality of what's around you? Uh, Israel was fighting for the retention of this land. We were fighting to end the occupation in accordance with international law which gave us the right to resist. That was how I saw it. I knew I could potentially be drawn into a bitter fight that would cause further bloodshed and suffering. It would require more endurance than I had been capable of before. I could no longer be just an observer. My anger, my sense of duty and of justice would not allow it. And yet, I felt that to fight in that way was not my role. I should write. It was good to take part in a common struggle, but I knew I should be careful of how far I allowed myself to get involved. I mistrusted my ability to, retain, to remain restrained. I could not trust myself to face this cruelty and stay sane. By the end of each day, I felt so exhausted that I would go home to my one-room flat and sit in the dark then take a shower, put on my pajamas, and work on updating my book, Occupier's Law, on the legal and human rights implications of the occupation. Thank you. That crystallizes that moment in time very clearly. And if we're sticking with the sort of chronology of the relationship, the next important point after 1980 is 1987, with the beginning of the first intifada, which, as I'm sure you all know, is a 
popular uprising um, began in 1987. The situation became a lot more violent on the streets. The crackdown by the Israeli army became a lot more severe. Um, and things go very quiet between you and Henry for a while. Belatedly, he sends you a poem. Um, and what you write about that is that you say, you decide that words or even tears are not enough. Action is needed. And his response to the way your life has changed under the Intifada is that you say, it's too little, too late. Do you feel this was a failing in him, or do you think actually any friendship across the border was impossible at this time? No, but it, it brought the question to mind what sort of, how to, to sustain a friendship under these conditions. I was going into more action because I had, I had to. Uh, I, I was drawn to, to, to do more work for human rights and, and uh, writing and so on because the situation was overwhelming and, and I couldn't be left alone. If, if in the past I could uh, uh, read the reports from the field that we were getting from the field workers of the uh, human rights organization and then write in, in silence in a sense. Uh, in this case, I would be going to the office to my office and I would be stopped on the street and, and harassed by the soldiers and we had somebody who was beaten right in the stairwell of, of the office and, and he, he had simply been passing by and the soldiers just grabbed him, beat him up and, and continued walking and, and we pursued the soldiers and said we want to know your names and your rank and so on and we want to report you and, and they just brushed us aside and, and laughed at, at our in, uh, insistence and we went with them to the station and tried to talk to their commander there was no way so uh, more and more was happening that was making me angry and and making life very difficult conditions of life very difficult and I saw that so many other friends in Israel and other colleagues and so on were, were doing all they could and Henry was not Henry was saying on the side and writing me sometimes uh, things that uh, he, he, he thought would be appeasing enough and, and it wasn't and so I, I was very angry with Henry and for a number of years I didn't want to see him and my wife would say you know you, you, you're being too cruel and I would say no I can't see Henry I don't want to see him I, I, I'm angry with him and I didn't see him for a number of years for a number of, so during that period of the Intifada you never had that experience of feeling angry towards him and then that feeling somehow melting away face to face during the intifada no and and he he wrote even <laughs> he wrote and said you know i'm i'm taking part in demonstrations and uh, and dialogue groups and so on and i thought oh my god the dialogue groups in this time what what's the point of being doing dialogue and uh, it made me even more angry and i i yeah. didn't want to see him okay. i didn't want to see him and i didn't see him and so cruel, cruel. Yeah. Who are you saying is cruel? You're cruel I'm or he's cruel? I'm cruel. But you know, the point is that in this book, I, I laid out the relationship and the feelings and didn't try to influence the reader one way or the other. I think, uh, unlike my other books where I tried to tie everything down at the end, in this book, I left it to the reader to decide how they thought about this friendship, about my role in it, his role in it. And I think... In a way, this is how it should be. And, and so far, I've had many different views from readers who sometimes 
liked Henry, blamed Henry, blamed me. So uh, it, it opens discussion. And this is what books are supposed to do, open discussion. So you say, are you being deliberately, so you feel you're being self-critical? Well, I, I, I laid things out exactly as they happened. I, I was trying to be as truthful as possible, as honest, and, and using the material from that time, using the letters that I wrote, the letters that he wrote, with his permission, of course, mm. and, and, and leaving it to the reader to decide. Mm. Um, and the trajectory we've passed through historically is as yet one of things getting worse and worse and worse, but there is a blip that we need to discuss, which is 1993, the Oslo Accords. Yeah. So the yeah. Intifada seemed like a... Do- and then 93 was a moment internationally perceived as a moment of great optimism within Ramallah, a certain degree of celebration and optimism... But as you describe in this book, even then you yourself felt very um, bleak at that time, unoptimistic about the Oslo Accords, and historically you have been vindicated. Well, <coughs> the, the uh, Oslo Accords were a time, a dismal time for me. I, I mean, I, I felt that all my work throughout, which had been to uh, explore and, and bring forward n- uh, awareness of the legal uh, changes and, and what Israel was trying to do and how it was trying to colonize the West Bank and the Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem. All of that was destroyed by the stupid uh, accord which gave Israel a free hand and which was presented to the world as, as making peace with, between Palestinians and Israelis and opened so many doors of countries which had been refusing to make relations with Israel, opened the door and, and, and they started relations because they said, well, now the PLO has accepted Israel. And, and they did accept Israel. And, and, and so I, I felt cheated. I felt absolutely cheated. I felt, I felt uh, we are going to go into terrible times. And I felt it with the Israelis because be in, during the Intifada, because we were resisting, there was a healthier relationship between Israelis and Palestinians because we were standing uh, uh, strong uh, against them. And, and after the Intifada, we were beaten. In, in their view, we were completely beaten and they just walked all over us and, con- and are continuing to walk, walking all over us to this day, of course. So, so I, I felt that uh, all this effort has been come to nothing. I felt that uh, I don't want to lose everything, including my friendship. And, and I thought, you know, maybe it's time to, to see Henry and see, uh, renew our friendship. And in fact, it so happened that I was in West Jerusalem look, uh, w- for, f- to see a film, and, and there was Henry. Just at the moment when I was thinking, it's time now to see Henry and, and to renew the friendship. And there he was. And, and we immediately uh, found that we could... Uh, renew the friendship. We, we, we met and, and Henry didn't even want to speak about that break in the past. Mm. And I told him, wait a minute, we have to discuss first why and, and try to explore before we resume our friendship. And, and he reluctantly accepted. He's, he's such a peaceful man. And at this point in time, people who there are very few people were willing to speak negatively about the Oslo Accord. Edward Said was one of the only public intellectuals to vocalise that viewpoint and he was widely demonised for it. I wonder, could you, um, your uh, prescient negative feelings about that time, how did Henry feel about that? Did he feel uh, badly towards you that you, you couldn't share the moment of optimism that was widely felt elsewhere? I 
to tell you the truth, I don't think we even discussed that. That was, that was strange, perhaps, but we didn't, we didn't discuss the Oslo Accords. And he, 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 of course, assumed that everything would be all right, and, and I made it clear that everything was not all right, but he didn't question me further on, on this. Uh, and, uh, and we went on just again, like before, without, without entering into the politics of it. Mm. Strange. It's interesting. And in terms of the, what I was very struck by um, is the, uh, the immense psychological burden that the occupation has placed on you. Uh, and um, when you're describing this era, this point of time in your life, there was one paragraph that jumped out at me as uh, extremely painful. What you say is this. You say, with my profound feeling of inadequacy, I'm doomed to feeling the need to justify my existence through writing and speaking while assuming the burden of and responsibility for the failure of all I see around me as if it were my own. That's such a bleak statement and one of um, it's such a difficult psychological position to be in. Um, can you expand on, on what you're feeling at well, this point? Well, you can say that it is bleak. You can also say it is motivating because I, in, in a way it has to do a lot with my relationship with my father, this particular uh, point. Because um, my father was the kind of person who, if he saw something wrong, he would not stand aside and, and let it be. He would take action. He was a man of action. And, and, he, and he always went out of his way to help people. And likewise, I thought that if I see something wrong in the occupation and, and, and what is happening and so on, I cannot stand aside and, and let it be and think I will mind my own business. So it has been a motivating force. But at the same time, I, uh, I have always felt that I have to justify my existence by writing. And, and that has been a motivating aspect for, for uh, motivated me to, to keep on writing. And has the need to bear witness to what's happening in your place to which you're very deeply bonded, has that altered the course of your life? Has that put pressure on you to, to decide where you live and what you do with your life? Do you feel like you absolutely have to stay there to to bear witness as an act of resistance? I have felt from the very beginning that one of the most effective kinds of resistance that we could have towards the occupation is to stay put and to stay on the land, and we call that sumud, which is perseverance and staying put. And I always felt that this was the most important weapon we had against the Israeli colonization, which was aiming from the very beginning to rid the land of Palestinians and replace them with Israeli Jews. I mean, that was very, very clear to me. I could not, I could not avoid seeing that. Uh, and so for me to stay, and, but, but it's not just, just to stay, to stay and bear witness, if you like, yes. And, and in my way of bearing witness was to, to, to write and to, to reach out to, to the world, to explain what was happening, and, and, to, and to show the significance of the situation, not only for us, but for the world, because our case is one where international law is being tested. And the failure of international law in our part of the world, in our small part of the world, has great bearings on the rest of the world. And I think the, the violence in the Middle East could have been avoided had the conflict in Palestine been resolved by negotiations. But when it wasn't possible to resolve it by negotiations and by observing international law, it gave the, the wrong uh, uh, message to the rest of the people around. And, and I saw it in, 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 in the, uh, my small circle in Ramallah. People would say, 
well, what's the use of negotiations? Look where it led us. So what did this leave but fighting? And, and so the failure of international law is of grave significance and consequence. Hmm. Um, and before we open it up to questions, I think we should probably tie up the relationship with Henry. So your breach with Henry continues. Um, no, it continues until the Oslo, and then, and then we get back together. And then you hear that he's deeply ill with, um, with cancer. And how, do, how does that change your friendship? And also, quickly, where d- um, where's your friendship got to now? And what does he think of the book? Yes. That's <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I continued to, to see Henry, and, and we continued our friendship uh, throughout the... Even, even the difficult time of the Second Intifada, when it was very difficult to, to get to him. And then one day in the morning, I wake up and check my email, and Henry tells me in detail how he discovered that he has lymphoma and, 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 and what a terrible consequence it has had on him and on his life and so on. And I, at that point, I realized that nothing is, is as important. I don't want to lose this friendship, this man. And, and I feel so moved, and I immediately call him and say, can I come and see you, and what can I do? And then, of course, I go, and I'm totally distressed by what I see. And, and then I tell him, be sure that I, I will be there in any way you need me. And he did need me, because he was getting very depressed and so on. And, and he said, can I call you whenever I need? I said, absolutely, call me. He called several times, and I went to visit him. And, and I realized that there is a, a human aspect that is m- more important than the politics, than the anger, than an- anything. Mm. And, and so uh, th- that uh, w- was a jolt that, that uh, reminded me of, of the importance. And then, uh, and then when I started writing, I thought I would write a book about crossings over the years and, and how things have changed in order to show that the bad situation, it's a very bad situation that we are in now bet- uh, between Palestinians and Israelis, has not always been like that. There were different periods, times when it was good, times when it was not very good, but it, it, we went through stages. It wasn't always the way it is now. Uh, now, of course, uh, Netanyahu calls us wild beasts. Uh, and uh, so I thought I'll write a book of crossings. And then when I started writing the book of crossings, I realized that many of the crossings were in order to see friends on the other side. And so I started writing about these friends. And then Henry's friendship took over and became a thread that runs throughout the book. Now, when I started writing about Henry, I saw him and told him, Henry, I'm going to write a book in in which I will write about our friendship. And do you allow me to use your letters? and poems that you sent to me. He said, anything you want. So I went ahead. And then I didn't want to show him the manuscript. And I didn't want to ever interview him in, 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 on parts that I was not sure about uh, facts of his life and so on. I didn't want that relationship to be formalized in that way. And then when the book was finished, the first person to read it was Henry. And uh, I was, of course, a bit concerned about ho- how, he would <laughs> how he would find it. And so he didn't answer for a few weeks, and it was because he was busy, but I thought maybe he doesn't like it and he's angry. And then uh, he said, let's get together. And when we got together, he, he said, he hugged me and said, I had tears in my eyes. I read the book twice, and I felt uh, it gave significance to my life. 
So I was very happy about that. And, and Nomi, the other woman who is in the book, also read the book after it was published, although mm. I never mentioned to her that I was going to write about our friendship, and she also wrote me that she liked it very much. So that's great. And that, that's was, that was a re- great relief. I'm sure. And uh, it's big of him because he doesn't come out of the book that well. Well, <laughs> you see, you, you think this way. Others mm. have thought otherwise. But, you see, it's, it's interesting. Mm. That is interesting. Yeah. Uh, my publisher was worried. Oh, really? Yeah, my publisher was worried. About him personally? Well, about right. what the reaction of Henry would be. And, right. uh, you know, I, I told him, don't worry, Henry would be okay with it. But he wasn't <laughs> sure. <laughs> so he was very relieved when I to- wrote to him what Henry wrote to me about the book. Uh, that's fascinating. And I have, um, having tied that up, I have a couple of g- general questions I'd like to ask you before we open, open up to the audience. One is, it's very easy to s- sit here so you're talking as an internationally respected writer and um, intellectual, and to imagine that you have a life similar to the other writers appearing at this festival. Um, but I think it's important to reinforce that you do not. You've lived your whole life under military occupation. Um, and if you want to go anywhere, you have to encounter soldiers, young men with guns, and occasionally women, who can do pretty much anything to a Palestinian civilian with few consequences. And what runs through your books is the immense pressure of both fear and anger. It's come up in your readings that, that runs through your life. Um, and yet your books are not fearful or angry books. Um, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say about how you go about um, passing those emotions, dealing with those emotions, and communicating them so well on the page without producing angry books? Well, I think the answer is in the fact that I start with, uh, or I constantly write diary, and I have tons of papers with diaries from uh, all throughout the 50 years of occupation. And, and in these diaries, I try to express my emotions immediately without thinking, without rereading them, and just pour them out. And then I use that uh, diary and 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 I realize that if I'm too angry or too extreme I tone things down you know I have to tone things down because I find and and sometimes I have to remove some of the facts because if I write about everything it would be too much for the reader so so I'm always constantly thinking how much can the reader take and sometimes after I've written something and and then I read it to myself I think Oh my God, it's too depressing. I, I feel depressed by it. How would the reader feel? So I, I change it and, and, and tone it down. Because actually what is happening now in, in the occupied territories, if I were to speak about it, uh, uh, as, it, uh, as, it was, as it's happening, it's, it's just too much. It's amazing. It's, it's amazing that something like this would continue to happen. I mean, this case of this uh, Azaria who, who, who shot this wounded Palestinian and he, he, he declared this man should die and shot him and became a hero in Israel and 60% mm. of the Israelis who were questioned uh, said yes he did the right thing I mean somebody was bleeding and, and he came to, to supposedly to save him because he's a he's medic, a medic. Yeah. amazing but presumably whether you're a writer or not a writer living there there's this constant um, struggle to deal with how much anger, how much do you want yourself, allow you, how much can you allow yourself to be angry because you have to continue with your life 
Yes, and I want to mention something which, when I was writing uh, Occupier's Law, which was a, a book about in, in, in 85 about all the changes in the legal uh, legal changes in the occupied territories and the testimonies of uh, uh, victims of the violations. I remember I was uh, about to finish and to send the manuscript, and I, I had a court case in in, uh, in Nablus. And I took the papers with me, and I thought, you know, court cases, you, you have to wait a lot, a long, long time. And I remember sitting there in the court, going over the manuscript, and behind me was one person who I suspected was uh, uh, Shin Bet, uh, one of the security people. And I had a very good feeling that he is so unsuspecting of what I'm doing, and yet I'm <laughs> doing something which is extremely important and violent, uh, I mean, uh, reveals the violence. And he is totally unaware of it. And here I am doing it. Or, or when I would be searched on, in the airport and, and they would find papers and they would not bother to read them and they would be looking for bombs. And I would say, you know, bombs are, are not as important as paper and writing. Mm. And, and here I am taking out these papers in front of them. Mm. And, and so it gave me a, a good feeling. Well, that, I think that I c we can't think of a better way to end on than that testament of the power of the word. Um, so I think that seems like a perfect moment to open this out to the audience. Um, we have a roving mic, so please wait for the mic to come to you. But do you have any questions for Roger? Yeah, the, the gentleman here with the blonde hair and the glasses. Thank you very much. That was wonderful. Um, your book could be seen as a, a relationship, an individual psychological relationship between a Palestinian and an Israeli. And it could be seen as analogous to the relationship between the states uh, of Israel and Palestine, where the Israelis in general don't understand the situation truly. They don't have a feeling of guilt mm -hmm. or a feeling of responsibility. And yet there will be peace in the future. There has to be. How do you see the two sides coming together? How do you see the Israelis relating, assuming there is a peace? to their deep problems that they've been facing over so many years? Well, I think one of the main ingredients of, of peace is for the Israelis to recognize what they did to the Palestinians in 1948. I think without that, there cannot be a lasting peace whatsoever. And we are as far from this as possible. I describe in, in the book a, a case of a, a, a friend who was in Germany, and he saw what are called stumble stones, which are uh, put down uh, where the uh, Jews were living, who, who were uh, deported or, or taken to the extermination camps. And, and they have marked the place where they were living by a, a plaque in, on, uh, on the ground. And he thought, what a good idea this is. And he was uh, at a, a, a dinner on, on, the, on the west side of Jerusalem with, with Israeli friends. And he told them, I was in Germany, and I saw these stumble stones, and what a good idea. And how about doing something like this where in, in, in West Jerusalem, where, there, where the Arabs were living, and at least mark where they had their homes? Silence. Silence. Do we have another question? Um, yes, just a few rows back here. Thank you, Thank you very much, Roger. I had a great... I had the great privilege of working with a British NGO uh, for which I was responsible for all their Middle East projects between 1987 and 1994. So I used to frequently visit, and one of those uh, organisations we supported, of course, was Al-Haq. So it's lovely to hear you. But one of the things that stuck in my mind 
over the many years of traveling there was that every time I left from Tel Aviv, I would be interrogated as to who I had visited when I told them I'd been in the West Bank and Gaza. So I used to, I never liked to lie, so I used to avoid by telling them always the names first of the Palestinian Israelis that I had met in, in the Galilee. And on so many occasions, the people interrogating me refused to accept there were any Palestinians in Israel. Even though I said, no, 22% of your population are Palestinian Israelis. And that sense of denial was so uh, widespread. And it, it, it brought to my mind once I met a rabbi on one of my visits here, an American, who said to me he thought there would never be any change towards peace and justice until ordinary Jewish Israelis stood up to their government and said, please stop labeling us as victims of history. And I, I'm interested to know today if you feel we're any closer to ordinary Jewish Israeli people recognizing how important that is for things to move forward. I'm sorry to say that no. There, there are groups like Zechrot, which is a small group of uh, Israeli Jews who are dedicated to informing the public about what happened in 48, and they write books and publications and make visits, uh, take people to, to see the places and, and bring uh, testimony from, from uh, Israelis who were involved in the massacres to testify, and, and they do wonderful work, but they are a tiny, tiny group. And when they have their uh, film festival, uh, there's a big uproar, and then they're not allowed very often to present their films in the uh, auditorium, and, and a big struggle happens. Uh, unfortunately, I do not think, although a number of my books also were published in, in, in Israel, and, and I've had some wonderful responses from Israelis who read these books and, and wrote wonderful things. I, unfortunately, I do not think there is going to be a change effective change until the Israelis begin to suffer economically for their policies. And at this point, they are not. At this point, the, the uh, occupied territories are a free uh, a captive market, uh, free land to build the, uh, homes on. Uh, they offer, uh, and, and, and the government is uh, dominated by settlers. So, so there's unlikely, totally unlikely to be any change only due to moral reasons that suddenly the Israelis would wake up and say, oh, we're doing such harm to the people in Gaza, we're keeping them in an open-air prison for all these years and, and depriving them of all the basics of life and of the West Bank and, and of the future and of the future of the region as a whole because the conflict in Palestine is damning the region as a whole, I, th I believe, very strongly. Uh, it's impossible to imagine that they would wake up and, and th have these thoughts. And, and they would make a change. The change can only come if there is a feeling that they have to suffer economically for their policies. And they are not now. Well, I'm sorry to say that's all we've got time for today. But um, Roger will be signing books in the tent immediately next door. So if you have, have any questions for Roger, I'm sure he'll be happy to talk to you as he signs books. And I'd like, please join me in thanking Roger Shahade for his wonderful Thank you. I went very soon, very quickly. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.
The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.